Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile fellows at the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. I'm Melissa Clay, communication specialist. And I'm Philip Hollingsworth, coordinator for faculty programs. Today, because it's the holidays and it's the end of the year, we thought we would talk about the podcasts in review and discuss the ones that we really liked or remarkable things. And we've been doing this podcast for just a little bit over a year. That's right. I think right. we released it in November of 2015. So I was thinking we could do a little bit of a retrospective. When I think about our podcast, I think about some of the interesting things we learn about the faculty and their habits. They have these pillars of research and teaching and service and how do you get all of that done? And one of the questions we ask faculty are, what is your idea of rest? And one of the podcasts, I remember getting a really surprising answer to that question was uh, Nicola Lowe, yeah. um, where she talked about being on an alternative sleep schedule. So about five years ago, I embraced alternative sleep patterns. <laughs> Oh my! Talk about that because um, that is well. There, there was, <laughs> there were a few articles that came out in mm-hmm. I think it was the BBC and the New York Times um, based on research that had looked at writings pre-electricity and had determined that the eight-hour sleep is a modern construct mm-hmm. and that in fact most people prior to a time when there was well-illuminated streets and electricity was the norm, used to adopt first and second sleep habits where they would sleep for about four hours, wake up for about two, and then go back to sleep for three to four hours. And so that is now my sleep pattern. And so between first and second sleep is when I do a lot of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I do my grading then. Um, I try and mix it up. But it wow. is, as long as you budget 10 hours, then you can get roughly seven that's, to eight hours. So. That's amazing. That's... So I'm, I'm grateful to the literary scholars who <laughs> revealed that. So wait, when are the four, when are the, when's the first sleep? What are the hours of the first sleep? I probably shouldn't admit this, but I usually go to bed when my son does at about 8.30. <laughs> Wow! So you're you're up at at twelve thirty, twelve thirty or one one o'clock, yeah. and then you and I will send emails sometimes, which really scares my students because they think I do pull all nighters. And you feel rested. I feel very rested. Through the course of this, you know, we've interviewed twenty eight people, right? Or had twenty eight interviews. Sometimes we've had pairs, but we've been able to get to that little point quicker where it's more of a conversation and they feel more relaxed and they kind of open up and you kind of see more about why they... It's not just about learning about what they study, but kind of tapping into the passion of that and um, finding out the origin of that or just where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of light up a little bit and and really get into what they're talking about. I I definitely agree. And I... um, One example of that was when you interviewed Oswaldo Estrada... Um, yeah. And his family uh, wanted him to be, and we heard this a few times where their families wanted them to be doctors or lawyers. And Oswaldo's talked about how much he loves what he does and, and teaching, especially. Um, that was a common theme heard throughout the podcasts. 
I never thought I would actually become a, a, a literature professor um, and not at UNC, but here I am. <laughs> yeah. So did you have an idea beforehand of what you might want to go into? As a good immigrant, I mean, I was born in the U.S., but I, uh, my, both my parents are Peruvian, and I was raised in Peru. When we came back and I was 14 years old, I knew that I had to go to college, and my family knew that too. Not that we knew how to get there necessarily, right? right? There were other things that I had to learn, like uh, I had to learn English, for instance. I had to learn about, you know, I I knew nothing about American culture. When I finally made it to college, I was supposed to, you know, of course, become either a doctor or an engineer or something like that. But the truth is that I didn't like any of my chemistry classes or biology or, or math. And I was sort of lost, like most undergraduates. And I decided to take Latin American literature course just for fun or to improve my GPA. I don't know. Right. You know what I was thinking when I was 18 or 19. It's taught in Spanish. So taught in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, and that was the thing. And I was sitting there waiting for the professor to show up. And when the professor finally entered the room and started saying, Hola, que tal? ¿Cómo está? Blah, blah. I thought, that's what I want to do. All this time I've been wanting to... Uh, you know, be a dog and become a doctor because that's what my parents want. That's what my family has wanted all my life. But I hate that. And, and, and this mm-hmm. is what, I, but I, of course, I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> right. I just started taking that class and other classes. And I think that by the time I was a junior, one of my, I was in office hours, and one of my professors said, so when are you going to declare you know, Spanish as your major? And I said, oh, no, I, don't, I can't. Uh, this is not what I'm going to do. I, I, I'm supposed to be a doctor. Yeah. And, and she started laughing. Yeah. And I was, of course, you know, terribly offended um, because I was only taking this for fun, really. She said, but you love this. And, and it was true, and she was right. I, I do love literature, and I, I wanted to start, you know, I wanted to study literature because I wanted to feel closer to my own homeland, to feel closer to my language. I was taking, like you said, you know, a class in Spanish, all, all these classes in Spanish, and, and that gave me a sense of empowerment. I really enjoyed that interview because he was one of my professors. <laughs> and so for me it was a little easier since I'm pretty introverted to get right into it and because I kind of knew him, and mm-hmm. so it, it was it was fun to do. Is there any lasting advice, or was there any mention or reference or something that really stuck with you? I'd say one of the things that that stuck out to me was um, the interview with Michael Gerhardt about yeah. the uh, political conventions. Just in the middle of them, uh, we um, we published that podcast in between the Democratic and Republican conventions. And his expertise is on the Constitution. And it was um, also before the event where he interviewed uh, Nina Totenberg. It was fascinating to me to hear about, uh, you mentioned how people become passionate about their research. And his story of growing up in the South, Jewish, and during the Civil Rights Movement, how that informed his decision to do the research that he does. That left a lasting impression on me. Another issue that came up recently was the Supreme Court nomination and 
you have a lot of experience with that. Um, if you could speak a little bit to how that might play out before we have a new president? Well, it's not clear it will play out. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, Justice Scalia, who actually was my constitutional law professor, died in the middle of February. Uh, it was unexpected, and I think it caught a lot of people very much by surprise. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of what everybody's witnessing right now is national leaders improvising. Uh, and that may not be a pretty picture, but that's basically what's happened. I think the Republican leaders feel that Justice Scalia was their most impassioned voice, Mm -hmm. the most passionate voice on the Supreme Court uh, with respect to kind of a conservative viewpoint on on the Constitution. And Republican leaders also think that without Justice Scalia on the court, the next appointment, the appointment to fill his seat, is going to transform the Supreme Court. It, It creates the possibility for a Democratic president, President Obama, to make an appointment which will bring about the first time in over 40 years a majority of Democratic appointed justices on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So every side sees this as a critical point. Every side has something hugely at stake, and so that's why it'll be a titanic conflict. What are your favorite moments in teaching? One, uh, One of my favorite moments probably actually happened when I was teaching at William Mary before I came to UNC, but I happened to be teaching a class on federal jurisdiction, which has to do with the power of federal courts. And I was teaching that class at the same time there was litigation in a case called Bush versus Gore. So uh, we were able to uh, have our class sort of pay attention to that lawsuit at every step along the way, through the state court system mm-hmm. and to the point at which it got to the United States Supreme Court not just once but twice. So that w- I think that was a very special opportunity mm-hmm. to not just – teach a very important class to some excellent students, but also to be able to use real-world events in the class and to have the class see how what they were learning really was uh, – really did matter mm-hmm. in a re- real-life dispute. Yeah. And what gives you inspiration or what motivates you? I, I am um, motivated, I think, largely by the belief that law can make a difference. I, I grew up in – Alabama in the 1960s, when the only thing that could make a positive difference was law. <laughs> and it was a tough a period um, if you happen to be uh, a minority. And I, I, I happen to be Jewish growing up in Alabama in the 1960s. So I had some perspective on that. And for me, my role models were judges and lawyers who were fighting for civil rights. And that's what defines my approach to pretty much everything. What about you? What podcast? I think one that you did that I was sitting in on that uh, I really got excited about was um, John McGowan started talking about teaching Immanuel Kant. He had this succinct elevator pitch of his philosophy or what he teaches, and I, I, I just enjoyed that. What is your favorite book or a book that you find meaningful that maybe you go back to? I never would have guessed this. I teach Kant's critique of judgment. And Kant's critique of judgment is Kant's aesthetics. It's the book where he tries to think about the place of art within human existence. And it's, it's a tough book. I mean, it's not easy to read, but I, can, I do it very slowly with the students. And I can usually get three-quarters of the students to uh, 
finally both understand what Kant is doing and also see why it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's an important book to me because, you know, I do believe in art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and art's under, under siege lots of times in our society. As, you know, why do we have it? Why is it necessary? Yes. And Kant, Kant has some good, good thoughts on that subject. Mm -hmm. so. Any you want to share? Yeah, so what Kant wants to say is that the cultivation of taste and a taste for the beautiful is both a pathway to thinking about morality because in, it's a complicated way. It's not that beautiful things are good. It's that he says when we believe something's beautiful, we actually have a commitment to convincing other people that it's beautiful. So it's not like liking green peas. I don't really care if you like green peas or not. Mm -hmm. But if I think Van Gogh's Starry Night is beautiful, I'm worried if you go and can't see it. I want to make you able to see why that's a beautiful painting. And he says, that means I have to begin to try to get myself inside your head to see the world from your point of view. How is it that you could have a different taste than I do about what's beautiful? And he says that move, the move of trying to get into somebody's head, is the beginning of morality. One of the questions we ask our fellows is um, a book that changed your life. And we get lots of different responses. When Todd Ochoa talked about J.R.R. Tolkien. I have to confess, I'm a huge fan of Tolkien. I've, I've read Tolkien probably more than any other author. Do you have a, a favorite? Because I know they're all kind of in the same. You know, I like The Silmarillion. I'm not, I haven't read that one. You, you, you know what's really cool about Tolkien is how it's all woven together for him. He was really busy. And once you get into the ba his background, like he was really into like Norse mythology, and he was a translator of you know Old English and Norse, and he'd read all the Norse accounts there were, and there just wasn't enough there for him, so he just made up a whole, <laughs> he made up worlds, yeah. right? That, that are very Norse in their yeah, okay, in their construction, but in the Silmarillion, there's a cosmology there, mm -hmm. so you get to. See see a creation story. He has his own creation story. And I, I'm a fan of, like, creation stories. And a lot of people try them. Like, sci-fi does a lot of creation stories. Yeah. Fantasy does a lot of creation stories. That's the thing I like the most about that book, yeah. is knowing where this world came from. But he's also, a, like, a humongous poet, right? Like, like, yeah. like the Silmarillion is just full of these yeah. songs that just go on and on, and you're just like, <laughs> for real, man? But, like, that's, like, so important to him. Yeah. Tolkien is also interesting in that he's good at, at staging mystery, not like, like a whodunit kind of mystery, mm -hmm. but just leaving things in, in a quiet suspense. He's very subtle with suspense, but as a storyteller, trying to figure out how he does it, he, he, he lays these little clues and hints and suggestions and unfinished scenes. You don't, even, you don't realize they're unfinished when he paints them, but then like, a little bit later in the book, you realize that, oh, you were actually missing something back there. And you go back and you f look for it, and it's not there, and you realize that, oh, it's coming. But it's so mm -hmm. subtle. That's As great. a storyteller, you pay, I don't know, yeah, yeah. pay attention to that stuff. Another example of a great book recommendation that's come out of doing this uh, podcast was uh, when we interviewed James Meeser. 
and he um, referenced William Luchtenberg's American Presidents. That was at a time before it was early summer, so we we're in election period, but not, you know, not through that. You know, we don't know who the president's going to be. I just right. thought it was a really interesting book to be reading in an election year. So I, and that's one of the things I love about the faculty is they're so thoughtful about what they read, even in their spare time, um, as it pertains to what's going on in the world. I'm currently reading Bill Luchtenberg's uh, book on the presidency from from McKinley to Clinton. Oh, that's timely. Yes, <laughs> it is. But Bill Luchtenberg's a great friend in the first place and a wonderful scholar. When you spoke about teaching the uh, the seminar uh, on music and culture, dance, um, you you just lit up. Uh, what other things inspire you like that? Well, great music inspires me. Um, when we had John Elliott Gardner's uh, group from, from London doing the Bach B minor mass, great performances like that do, are, are inspirational. And that's what I, you know, that's what I miss about my earlier career. That was hard to give up mm-hmm. because I loved being a, I loved being a performing musician. I loved making music, both playing the organ and, and, and choral conducting. Great architecture inspires me. Uh, that's another one of my interests. A bundle of things I, I also serve on the design review board here at UNC, which is a board that I created when I was chancellor. So uh, to make sure that we, when we did all this construction – that we didn't construct bad buildings. I, I, I'm, a, I'm just offended by bad architecture, mm-hmm. and, and I'm inspired by great architecture. And I think great design really expresses our values in, in, in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. And that's why I was, I was intent that we both do a good job of historic preservation of existing structures that deserve protection and restoration mm-hmm. – but that, that those are those kinds of things are important to me. It's not just a matter of aesthetics. It's a matter of uh, because I believe that that architecture is really an expression of our internal interior values as as a as a human race. Yeah. So it's a, a book we really like. I think Jennifer Ho. When we interviewed her early on, we were. We were asking for just book recommendations in general. I would say, so if we're at a party and you find out that I'm a professor who does Asian American literature, yeah. and you're like, oh, I've never read any Asian American literature. Yeah. I would say, oh, let me give you the go-to book I've been telling everyone to read, and that's Ruth Ozeki's A Tale for the Time Being. And I would write it down for you. By the way, if anyone's listening to this, it's Ruth <laughs> Ozeki, O-Z-E-K-I. There you go. And it, the novel is A Tale for the Time Being. It's It's amazing. I could not put this down when I when I got a copy and I got an advanced copy through a friend who works in publishing. Okay. So I read it all in a day and I taught it last year and my students loved it. It's mind-bending. It crosses time, it crosses space. It has a Hello Kitty lunch bag. When was this written? Was it is it pretty recent? Uh 2011, 2012. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty recent. What captured you to want to read that the whole day? What was Well, I'm a huge fan of Ruth Ozeki. So this is her third novel. So okay. I I regularly teach her first novel, My Year of Meats. And in fact, not only have I taught My Year of Meats nearly every semester, I actually write about it in uh, the book that was just published, Racial Ambiguity in Asian American Culture. So I have a chapter that's half devoted to 
my year of me. So I've been a huge Ruth Ozeki fan. So when that book came out, and that's my friend knew I was a huge Ruth Ozeki okay. fan. So he sent me the advanced copy, and then I just tore through it. But she's she's brilliant. She's a satirist, but she writes in this very lyrical manner, and it's very philosophical, and yet also very timely. All of her novels have an element of the contemporary in it, mm-hmm. but in a way that doesn't make it feel dated, right? right. So in a way that when you read, uh, for example a Hemingway novel, and it's clearly dated, right, because he's talking about um, the Spanish Civil War, right, mm-hmm. right? but it doesn't feel like it's antiquated, right? right? He still has the ability to place us right in the center of what is going on from his perspective. And I think that's what that's the, the genius of what she's able to do. She has a voice that is both timely and timeless. I think one thing that's been really interesting and fascinating is we've had the opportunity to speak with a lot of different folks from a lot of different departments. And then there, you know, the other thing that's notable about these podcasts have been the relationships with students that faculty have and how inspired they are by their interaction with the students at Carolina. One of the interviews that brings that to mind is the one with Michelle Berger, where she discussed Park Cannon, who's a Georgia State representative and was here on campus uh, to talk about the role of the humanities in her public life. Well, one, it's just a such a meaningful experience to see a student like Park really succeed very early on. And um, she was one of those students who stood out among many strong students. I taught her in a class called Women of Color in Contemporary U.S. Social Movements. Mm -hmm. And so the context of that class is that we really start with a little bit about civil rights, which many people know something about, but then we kind of problematize issues of leadership, who gets to be seen as a leader, and then we really talk from the contemporary moment on. So learning about the environmental justice movement, learning about um, LGBTQ movements, and learning about women of color's role in them. And so that was a very dynamic class, and Park was in that class. And I think I saw really the roots of a sense of social activism and and engagement. Mm -hmm. I think sharing this, she probably will share some of this when she comes, but she had come from another university and had had a a very bad experience, very racialized experience at that university. And so she was, I think, a bit wary of classrooms, Mm -hmm. of professors. And so in getting to know her through that class, uh, it was clear, though, that she had a lot to offer um, in terms of her own development. And I, I think she also is someone who is a great model for thinking about the value of the hum- of humanities and the value of women's and gender studies. Mm-hmm. So she takes her critical lens and applies that to her everyday political actions, right, as, as a legislator. And I think women's and gender studies helps people to develop, one, thinking critically about what impact they might have in the world. And they can do that in a lot of different ways. There's no one women's or gender studies job. There are just many ways to serve, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And she's a great example of that. I also had her in the course that I was talking about um, a few minutes ago, the Intro to Feminist Thought. And that's really where um, students are encouraged to not just 
think about this body of work as outside of themselves, but think about, you know, what does it mean to engage in issues around feminism as well as feminist thought? What does it mean to them to be a social thinker and someone civically engaged? And Park took those questions very seriously. And I think she comes from a family who has had interest and some connection to earlier civil rights movements. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I think she was really primed. And we, we gave her kind of a, a wonderful runway for her to develop her talents and skills. And we're extremely proud of her as a department. Kathleen Duvall talked about her students and how they um, would just sort of come alive at the discussion around things like the Declaration of Independence. In my lecture class, we were talking about the origins of slavery. And I Mm -hmm. said, you can't think of it as 19th century slavery. It's different from that. But the roots of plantation antebellum slavery are there in the 1500s and 1600s. And I'm going to show you the connection as well as how it was different. As soon as I asked you about your teaching, you completely lit up. (laughs) What are your best moments in teaching? I just feel so blessed to be here with Carolina students. They are uh, smart and well-educated and ready to learn something new. And Mm -hmm. they follow me wherever I take them. And I just find every semester I get so many delights out of I think one of my favorite things is having them read the first letter that Christopher Columbus wrote when he was coming back from his first First trip to the Americas. So he lands in the West Indies in the Caribbean. He, of course, thinks he's in Asia. He calls the people he meets Indians because he thinks it's the Indies. Mm-hmm. And so I have students read what he saw this very first time that a European wrote about the Americas. And he said some pretty surprising things. He says some things we expect. You know, we can find gold here, all these things. Okay. But he also says these people are kind and smart. Mm. And if we just bring them Christianity, they'll learn it. And he has lots of reasons for saying that. He wants to persuade the king and queen that this is a Christian endeavor as well as a money-making endeavor. Right. But he really believes it, too. And mm-hmm. and so I think one of the wonderful things is to get students in that that mindset, which is so different, both from what they expect of Columbus and what, who they are themselves, and to understand how that is both exploitative and but maybe not exploitative in quite the way they think. So these podcasts, you know, are are just a really great way to get a view of of faculty life, but also just learn about things that I didn't know before. Yeah, Yeah, I think I like to ask, and I don't ask this enough, but I would like to ask more about people's writing process or how they create. I want to know, like, how people write when they write, Mm -hmm. when it locks in for them, you know, because I feel sometimes, especially with writing or any type of creative endeavor, there's kind of a mystique about it. And the more I talk to people that do it, it's really a daily practice. Like when we were talking to Susan Harbage Page, she mentioned that. Yeah, I take a lot of walks, especially when I'm in Italy. I walk every single day, morning and night. And I think that really helps um, shift things. And also, I think it's, for me, it's about taking the pressure off. All I have to do is go into the studio and make a mark. Or I'm going to go to the border and I'm going to see what happens. I know now that um, 
I did work years and years ago in Palestine and Israel. And I went and I'd done all this research and I thought, okay, this is what it's going to be. And I got there and it was something totally different. And I think you have to have your, give yourself permission for that to happen. You have to give yourself permission to let the end product be something different. You have to let yourself fail. Um, the world of an artist is a lot of trial and error. And I have a lot of friends who, I think there's a big thing in failing faster and just learning from it and just trying yeah. the next thing. Or you know, And sometimes you have this great idea and you dream it up and you carry it around in your head. And then you realize it and it's you just go, oh, that's not <laughs> it. Oh, and then you don't show yeah. it to anybody. Yeah. and then Or you do show it to anybody and you talk about it. And then you figure out the next place to go. What I find is I try to f- listen to the questions that people ask me really closely when I share my work, and then that is always the next thing that I, they give me the clues to where the work needs to go. But for me, I think it's about working every day, allowing myself to throw the work out if I don't, it's just a part of the process. So you mentioned Susan Harbage Page is an artist, and I feel that one of our most recent podcasts with Jeannie Loeb asserted and confirmed the same thing because she talked about studies uh, showing that while, yes, people can have certain gifts, one shouldn't be deterred by not having a particular gift because when it comes down to it, it, it is going to be a matter of practicing yeah. and, and developing the skill, whether or not it is a gift that will still be necessary in order to, in order to improve. Right. So we'll just keep podcasting. Yeah, and, and we'll eventually get good at it. That's right. We'll get better at it. We are good. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.